Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. In in this passage, we will see Jesus trying to encourage his disciples as he prepares them against the persecution he knows is coming against them as the ungodly Jewish rabbinic system persecutes the disciples after Jesus has been crucified and ascended into heaven. In the last chapter, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus pronounced six woes upon the Pharisees in the house of a Pharisee whose house he had come to upon invitation by that Pharisee. He had blasted the Pharisees. The competition between the Pharisees and Jesus has now become great. The tension, the conflict is becoming in the open. It had been sort of tamped down as Jesus was trying to keep quiet while it was up there in Galilee, but now he's openly confronting the Pharisees as he gets ready for his crucifixion. So we'll start in Luke 12, verse chapter 1. So Luke chapter 12, verse 1 reads this way. In these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, the first thing we notice is we have a crowd of thousands. And then Jesus talks to his disciples. So somewhere in here, he's talking to his disciples alone. And then he's talking to the crowds all together. And people disagree on when that switch occurred between when he was talking to his disciples and he was talking to the crowds. So I'm not going to take a stand on that. He said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, he tells his disciples. Well, what's the yeast of the Pharisees? That's the Pharisees teaching, Matthew 16:12, and on another occasion. This is when Jesus was in the boat going from Decapolis east across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus told them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And they thought it was because they had forgotten to bring the bread. Matthew 16:12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus used that metaphor, yeast of the Pharisees, to talk about teaching. Now, yeast spreads through that which it is placed within. If you put a little bit of yeast in bread, it just makes the bread go bu- 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 higher and higher and higher, bigger and bigger and bigger. And it does it right quickly. And so this is what bad teaching does. It spreads quickly and ruins the lump of Judaism. Now, yeast, or leaven, in the New Testament is typically a symbol of corruption. The NIV Study Bible gives five verses here. I'll read them to you. Matthew 16, 6. Then Jesus told them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew 16, 11. Why is it you don't understand that when I told you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Luke 12 and... Verse 1, in these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together. That's the verse we're on now. And Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are, are, are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, feast of the Lord's Supper, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there Paul really hits that metaphor, yeast is evil. Galatians 5, 9, Paul says a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough, and he's talking about legalism, spreads to the church real quick and ruins the church. Now, having said that, we must always remember that yeast does not always refer to corruption in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 13, 33, 
we read this. He, Jesus, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. There, Jesus takes advantage of the characteristics of yeast, a particular characteristic of yeast, which is that it spreads fast. And his, and his point is that the spread kingdom of God is going to spread fast, which is a good thing, not a bad thing. There's no corruption there. The kingdom of God is good. It's not corrupt. Now, this verse starts out by saying, in these circumstances. What circumstances? Well, John Gill says the circumstances of denouncing the Pharisees in the previous chapter. Remember, he had just pronounced six woes on the Pharisees in the house of a Pharisee. Most of the previous chapter was denouncing Pharisees. So now Jesus was speaking more and more plainly, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Matters were coming to a head between him and his enemies. Now, as the Pharisees are getting angry and angry at Jesus, the people are getting more and more excited about Jesus. They were trampling each other to get to him, as the verse says. Why were they so excited? Perhaps they wanted to just see Jesus. Maybe they wanted to hear Jesus teach. Maybe they wanted to see how he would answer the violence of the Pharisees, John Gill suggests. Maybe they were looking for a fight. Who knows? But they're all coming. Jesus had started a movement now that could not be stopped until its ultimate conclusion of crucifixion and resurrection. Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus continues speaking probably to his disciples still. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. By the way, let me point out to you that verses 1 through 12, in chapter 12, the section we're covering, according to A.T. Robinson, this passage has no parallel passage, so we're assuming that anything that sounds like the teaching here was given on a different occasion. And there were several times when Jesus used this saying, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered. Now, the NIV study by McGill said that what this hidden stuff that, that uh, will be made known is this, nothing hidden through hypocrisy that will, fa will fail to be made known. In other words, all what the Pharisees are teaching is hypocrisy, and it's hidden out, it won't be made known. I don't know about that. I suspect that what Jesus is talking about is all the teaching that all the teaching that they have been doing, and they've been kind of quiet about it. They've been trying not to avoid, excite too much attention. Remember that Jesus healed the leper up in Galilee and said, don't go tell anybody about it. He was constantly doing that, the so-called messianic secret. He was trying to keep it quiet at first when he said, okay, it's covered, and now it's going to be made known because I'm getting near the end of my ministry, and I'm starting to make it known, and I'm starting to confront the Pharisees. I think that's what he's talking about. I don't think it's referring to the truths that the Pharisees are hiding through their hypocrisy. This is a general sentence used by Jesus at different times, as John Gill says in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 27, a different occasion. He said, Therefore, don't be afraid of them, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, which you hear in a whisper proclaim on the housetops. And I think the idea is, is they were afraid at first because the Pharisees had so much power and so they were being quiet about it. And Jesus said, don't worry. Sooner or later, you're going to be preaching it all over the world. This, of course, is going to happen after Pentecost. And again, the context here is Jesus is preparing his disciples for the upcoming shock of the crucifixion. So it makes sense. It's what he's talking about. He says, you, you've been quiet before. Pretty soon you're going to be very open about it. Mark 4, verse 22. For nothing is concealed except to be revealed, and nothing hidden except to come to light. Luke chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And here he's talking about the disciples. Whatever you have said, he's talking to his disciples. So it doesn't sound like it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees that it's being hidden, and it's going to be exposed by the light of the gospel. It sounds like 
the gospel itself is what has been being said in the dark, quietly. Now, this private rooms, that refers to storerooms in ancient houses in the ancient Near East, which were put in the middle of all the other rooms of a house so that no one could dig in from the outside and steal stuff through the, through the wall. And so it was the most private place of the house. And so that's why Jesus used that to emphasize that the teaching was done secretly and quietly and private, right in the middle of the house. But later it's going to be proclaimed on the house tops where everybody can see it and hear. Now, John Gill backs me up on this here. He says what was taught secretly to the disciples would be preached publicly in the world, which is what I think this whole passage is referring to. That certainly came to pass. The gospel is being preached right now all over the world, and it's bearing its fruit. We go to Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Well, the first thing I just can't help say is, Rob Bell and others like you who deny hell, how in the world do you deal with such straightforward verses that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ says, hey, God the Father has the authority to throw people into hell after death. I mean, do you really have to have it spelled out for you? Or do you continue to write your heretical books trying to suck up to today's compromised Antichrist culture? What is the occasion of this verse? Remember, the context is Jesus is trying to train his disciples and to buck them up and to help them not fear the mess, the horrible persecution that's about to come on them. And so Jesus speaks some very, very strong words here. He says, look, they're going to try to come kill you, but don't fear those who kill the body. Because once they got you, once they kill you, they can't do anything more to you because your spirit's going to escape your body. You're going to be with me spiritually in heaven, and that's not a thing they can do to you. Now, I've always said, I don't worry about me dying so much, but what scares me so bad is the torture, the pain that comes when people, when they, when they torture. I've read a lot of history, and every time I read these, about these torture chambers, especially in the Byzantine Empire, about how they tortured people to death, my gosh. I, you know, grabbing you with pincers and pulling your skin off and making you balance on a beam over a cauldron of boiling silver. And so finally you get tired and you can't stand it anymore and you fall off the beam and you and you boil to death in silver and that kind of stuff. No, I, I, yeah, I'm afraid of that. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. They can't get you once you die. How about those in the West, those martyrs in England who died at the stake when they were burnt to death? You ought to read the accounts of what it's like to be burned to death. That's why many people would do anything just to say, hang me. They, they say, okay, you condemn me to death, but please hang me. Don't burn me to death. But at any rate, Jesus says, don't fear, except you are supposed to fear him who has authority to throw people into hell. Now, here's an interesting theological question. Jesus is not talking to the Pharisees here. He, he says, I say to you, my friends, in verse 4, I say to you, my friends. He's talking to his disciples. Why would his disciples fear God who is able to throw people into hell? The disciples of Jesus aren't going to be thrown into into hell by God. So why would he say that? Well, in my opinion, Jesus was not in any way suggesting that his disciples might be thrown into hell, for example, by compromising the faith. He's just trying to say, this God has got so much power that he could throw you into hell if he wanted to, not that he's going to. He's got so much power that you really don't want... You, you, you want to fear him more than you feel the, fear these people who are taking your property and, and killing you and persecuting Jews. 
Adam Clark says that this verse shows that even Christians are to fear God. Quote, Therefore it is proper even for the most holy persons to maintain a fear of God as the punisher of all unrighteousness. And so Jesus is saying, look, hey, don't give in to these people because that would be great sin. Remember that the God that you're sinning against by compromising with these persecuting Jews, Jewish leaders, that God can throw people into hell. So don't get him upset with you. Don't do that. Notice again that Jesus is talking to Christians. He says, I say to you, my friends. And then he says, yet I say to you, this is the one to fear. He's talking to Christians here. Don't fear those who kill the body. Now, this is an awesome verse because as the church in China has experienced persecution, and I've talked to people, I've, you know, I've lived amongst those Christians for a long time, and I see that they just kind of get used to the fact that the government hates them, is going to shut the church down, is going to throw the leaders in the prison. They all the time they're just used to this we're not used to it here in america but it's coming the the lickabut community will see to that the secularist antichrist leftist the progressive leftist the social justice warriors they hate christ they hate christians and they're going to come after us but we are not should not be afraid of them because those people can't do anything to us even if they killed us which i'm sure they would love to do i don't think it'll get that bad in my lifetime it might who knows but even if they do have the power to kill us they can't take us away from jesus they can't so we don't need to be afraid luke 12 verse 6 through 7 jesus continues talking probably to his disciples alone aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies yet not one of them is forgotten in god's sight indeed the hairs of your head are all counted don't be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows the don't be afraid, that's the theme of this, this passage here. He's trying to buck the disciples up against the horrible persecution that's going to be coming on them. And he uses a homely example, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? And let me take a little excursion here uh, to discuss the price of sparrows. On another occasion, Matthew 10:29, we read this, aren't two sparrows told, sold for a penny? In Luke 12, it's five sparrows told for two pennies. If you do the math, the sparrows don't aren't, the same exactly the same value in both passages in matthew ten twenty nine one sparrow is in is worth one half cent, two sparrows sold for a penny, so one sparrow is a half cent but in luke twelve six our verse here, five sparrows sold for two pennies, so that means one sparrow is worth point four cents, two fifths is point four so in matthew it's point five cents and luke it's point four cents so we're going to really get upset about that, or we're going to be a liberal and say, oh see there the Bible's got contradictions in it. Well, rounded off 0.4 cents, that's close enough to 0.5 cents. The price of sparrows is going to fluctuate on the marketplace in different times, different places. Different sellers of sparrows might charge slightly different prices. There's no big deal here, folks. Now, I did some math here using the Greek here. The NIV Study Bible points out that the words for Roman coins in the New Testament are three, three different Greek words. A denarius is worth 50 cents, and a sarian is worth about a nickel in American money, and a quadrantes is worth a penny. The word in Luke 12:6 is a sarian, so Jesus is saying five sarians is worth about, let's see here, five sparrows sold for two asarions, so two asarion and a sarian is worth a nickel, so two asarions a dime, so you got five sparrows costing a dime, one sparrow is worth about two cents instead of 0.4 and 0.5 cents. So it's the, the the amounts are calculated a little bit different. Well, by the time you get through the Greek and the different measuring systems and the constantly fluctuation value of coins, we're not going to quibble over the fact that the price comes out a little bit different. 
And besides, like I said earlier, sparrows aren't necessarily going to be sold for the same amount at different times and different places. So getting past that little point, let's go back to the main point. Sparrows are worth almost nothing, but God still cares about them. Not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. So a fortiori, if God cares about the sparrows so much, don't you think he's going to care for you, disciples, despite the fact that you're going to be persecuted even to death by these Jewish authorities, these synagogue officials, these Sanhedrin officials? In fact, disciples, the hairs of your head are all counted. I know every hair in your head, and when you die, if you're killed, not all of you will be killed, but if you are, don't worry, you're going to get your hair back. Every last hair. I, I got it. I got it all in my mind because you're going to be resurrected from the dead. Now, if you think about the ultimate implications of Christianity, the total and utter victory we have over the horrible stuff that's in this life, even death, that's why so many people are Christians despite the opposition to the faith. In Luke 21:18, in another passage, Jesus says, Not a hair of your head would be lost. Here he says in verse 7, he says, All the hairs of your head are counted. And in, ver in chapter 21, verse 18, he says, not a hair of your head will be lost. So even if you die, you're going to get all your hair back. Not to mention every the arms and legs and everything else, you might have lost your head. Luke 12, verse 8 through 9. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the coming persecution. And when you're persecuted, what's the first thing they're going to say? Deny Jesus Christ. He's, so, he's trying to buck them up against the terrible temptation to do just exactly that. Here's some words that are spoken on different occasions that, that follow along with this theme. Luke 9:26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of his Father and the holy angels. 2 Timothy 2, 12. And by the way, that passage I just read in Luke 9 could be referring to what these disciples have to deal with. It could be referring to the Olivet Discourse. So you're going to be ashamed of me when all this Jewish persecution comes down on your head? Well, I won't get into that right now. It doesn't matter. The point is, whenever we see Jesus, we don't want to be ashamed. We want to maintain our confession of our faith. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Well, there you have it, folks. I remember being challenged by these verses when I was a kid. Facing not persecution, but the opprobrium of being a Christian in a secular, antichrist-type high school. You know, the progressive left nonsense. And I had a hard time with this because I said, yeah, I don't think I can stand up against the opposition. Well, here Jesus is saying, even if they try to kill you, you need to stand up against it. And you don't want to deny Jesus. Now, Jesus says that whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I have an interesting theological question. Didn't Peter deny Jesus three times? Is he going to be denied before the angels of God? Well, I think the way you deal with that is it means if you deny God at the time of your death, whoever continues to deny me before God, before they die, whoever continues to deny me before men, before they die, will be denied before the angels of God. I think that's the only way that verse makes sense. Now, I wish that the Greek would back me up on that so that it would say that whoever continues to deny me before men, but it doesn't. It's an errorist participle there. The one who having denied Jesus. So, but if you translate it this way, whoever having denied me before men at the time that he dies will be denied before the angels of God. That makes perfect sense. 
I, I, I'm reminded of a story I read a long time ago about that Romanian communist uh, Christian who was, no, no, excuse me, not communist, he was a Romanian Christian who was persecuted by the communists, Richard Warmbrand by name, and he was in the prison and they would periodically torture those who were in the prison and they would at, tell them to deny their faith and they would hear the screams and the anguish and the crying. It was horrible in a different room as the torturers did their dirty work and some of the Christians cracked and and they could hear and they say, yes, I deny Jesus. Well, when they came back in, how did the prisoners who had also been tortured and who had not denied Jesus, how did they treat those who had denied Jesus? They treated with them with absolute love and compassion because they knew how hellish it was to be tortured. And those people who denied Christ, of course, were horror. The pain of that was almost as bad as the torture. It might have been just as bad as the torture that they had undergone. But the non-denying Christians stood by them and tried to rehabilitate them. And like I said, Peter denied Jesus three times. So we've got to not misinterpret that verse. We want to have compassion for those who do deny Christ under pressure. And we want to take them back in, accept their apologies, and move on. Now John Gill adds an interesting point here. He says that a disciple denying his master's teaching was a heinous crime with the Jews. So Jesus is speaking in a very Jewish manner here. Don't deny what I'm teaching. Now notice that Jesus is, calls himself the Son of Man here, and I say to you, this is in verse 8, and I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him. Well, he's using a messianic term. He's saying, I have the right to acknowledge you because I'll be in heaven before the angels because I am the Messiah, because that's what Son of Man meant. It was a messianic term. Let me read you some interesting stuff I found on the Internet about the phrase Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man is actually used by Jesus to emphasize his divinity. It sounds like humanity, Son of Man, is, you know, you would think emphasizes humanity, but actually it emphasizes his divinity. Jesus got the phrase from Daniel 7, 13, 14, which says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So the Son of Man went up before the throne of God, the Ancient of Days is God, Verse 14, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So when you hear Son of Man, it comes from Daniel, and we have Jesus getting dominion, glory, and a kingdom, a kingdom that's going to last forever. So you see how appropriate it is. Son of Man is talking about Messiah. This reference is the only relevant use of the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament. From the context, it is obvious that Daniel is using the term of someone divine. The Son of Man was presented before God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. But we know even more than we can get from the context. Daniel was a prisoner of the Babylonians during the famous Jewish Babylonian exile, which started in 587 or 586 B.C., in Old Babylonian, the phrase Son of Man meant heir to royalty. So when Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that the one like a Son of Man is a rightful heir and successor to the divine throne. Son of Man is essentially the same as Son of God in this context. In the New Testament, no one called Jesus the Son of Man with the exception of Stephen as he was being stoned in Acts 7. Jesus used it of himself all the time. He is recorded as doing this about 90 times in the Gospels. So every time he used it, he was essentially saying, I am God, and I will inherit a kingdom, and I, and I will have dominion forever and ever. And I will establish that kingdom by coming on the clouds in judgment upon my enemies. So this was an exalted term here, the Son of Man, that Jesus is saying. So he has the right to confess us before the angels, to acknowledge us before the angels of God. 
Now notice that Jesus in this verse says that the Son of Man, excuse me, that anyone who acknowledges me before men, what does that mean to acknowledge before men? Well, of course, it means to confess your belief in Jesus, but it doesn't mean confession only in the heart. In other words, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to believe it privately. You hear people say that all all the time. I will keep my religion to myself. I, I, my belief is a private thing. I had a roommate that said that. That was before we ended up shacking up with his girlfriend, then becoming a homosexual, and uh, died at the age of 36 from AIDS. Yeah, he had kept his religion to himself, all right. That's not going to get the job done, folks. you got to confess. Acknowledge means to confess openly, even under the, th- under the threat of persecution. Now, let me parse Clark's words a little bit, or, or John Gill's words. John Gill says that confession only in the heart is not enough for salvation. Now, confessing only in the heart is not denying Jesus before men, unless you're directly asked. Now, if you're asked and you keep it in your heart, that's one thing. I mean, just because you haven't had a chance to go around and say, I believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean you denied men. But when they come out and directly ask you, do you believe in Jesus? And then you and you say, uh, no, I don't. That's denying him before men. Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, I guess Jesus is kind of tempering his words a little bit here, saying, look, I know things are going to be tough, and you might, when under pressure, might want to deny me or say something about me that is is not good jesus saying i'm going to forgive that but i'm not going to forgive anyone who blasphemes against the holy spirit now what is blaspheming against the holy spirit well there's some other passages that use this phrase on different occasions i'll read them i think these two are parallel passages matthew 12:31. because of this i tell you people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven mark 3 verse 28 through 30 i assure you People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Notice the interesting detail that Mark has. They were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit, that Jesus was possessed of a demon. They were attributing the works of Jesus, the works of God, to the devil. Uh-uh. That, that's going too far. There's, there's no excuse for that. NIV Study Bible and Gill and Clark, or the NIV Study Bible, backed up by Gill and Clark, has this as a definition for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Quote, attributing to Satan Christ authenticating miracles done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's some parallel passages in Mark that clinch this idea. Mark 3:22. the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Mark 3:30. because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And by the way, as a pastoral type of statement, if somebody is worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, they haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit because people who blaspheme the Holy Spirit don't worry about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're very proud to do it. In fact, I think that attitude helps me solve a little theological problem which I have here. You know, Jesus can forgive any sin, right? He forgives murder. He forgives, oh, but he's not going to forgive blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Why will he forgive sins spoken against Jesus but not the Holy Spirit? Well, for one thing, Jesus is veiled. He was a human being, and, and maybe you know when you look at what Jesus did, you could say, well, he's a prophet, he's a teacher. Many people thought that. But by golly, when you're looking right at a miracle done in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of God, and you, and you say, the devil did that? Well, that's, that's taking your sin just a little bit further. 
But now let me ask you a question. What if somebody's blasphemed the Holy Spirit and then he asks forgiveness? Are you saying Jesus is not going to forgive that? Well, I have a problem with that because Jesus can forgive any sins. Well, I think the answer to that is, is that someone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he's not going to repent. By definition, he's not going to do it. The situation of repentance will never even arise, so the question is moved. People who are so hard as to look Jesus, God, in the eye and say he's of the devil, they aren't going to repent. I think it's a hypothetical matter if they did, Jesus would forgive them. So I think what Jesus is saying here is, no, they're not going to be forgiven because they're not going to repent. The one who, the one who is so hard as to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, he's not going to ask for forgiveness and therefore will not be forgiven. I think that's the best way to interpret that verse. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Jesus said the same thing on another occasion, Matthew 10, verse 17 through 20. Because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me. That would be the governors and kings would be the Romans. The Sanhedrins of the Jews in verse 17. And those were the two persecution entities in the book of Revelation, the sea beast being the Romans and the land beast being the Jews. You will be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say at that hour because you are not speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. What a promise. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that coming time of persecution. Jesus is still preparing his disciples for their coming persecution. And notice again, I'll emphasize this, verse 11, when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, it's the Jews that are persecuting Jesus at first. They were the ones that did most of the damage. Read the book of Acts. Always the Jews after Paul and his fellow apostles. So we'll call this audio, Jesus prepares his disciples against the coming persecution. And in the next audio, we'll take up his teaching against greed and worry. Greed for finances and worry about the lack of finances. I hope you enjoyed this audio. See you next time.